All right, good morning, everybody. Um, been looking forward to this um, today, and I'm excited. This is week two of our current series. It's going to be a short one, just three weeks. Um, Acts 1-8 to Church and State. And Adam started us off last week looking at Acts chapter 1, and Jesus telling his disciples, this is, this is what's about to happen, he, before his ascension. And his disciples ask an interesting question. It's like, you know, things are going to change, and he's been preparing them, talking about the Holy Spirit, and hasn't come yet. And his disciples go, so is it now that you're going to reinstall the kingdom? Like, you're going to be in charge now, right? We're going to get to rule with you, right? And I think Jesus is kind of like, three and a half years, and then 40 days after, okay, it's not going to be that kind of kingdom. And that's one of the key things. It's like, you will be my witnesses. It's, it's not going to be that kind of kingdom, that kind of kingdom. This is going to be a kingdom for everybody, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And you will be my witnesses, and you will receive power, but it's going to be power from the Holy Spirit. And today, we're going to look at um, about the true nature of power and, and what we think of and, and, and hope for in power. And so, um, like I said, I've been looking forward to this. Um, I think there's a couple reasons why Adam invited me in. Um, number one, he wanted to share the blame for this series. And um, I'm, okay, I want to make sure I saw Dan Condor. He was, told me to be prepared to be ducking for throwing things at me, so... Um, but also, I'm, I kind of have a unique perspective and unique experience compared to most of our church family. Um, for 13 years, my family lived overseas, lived in Ivory Coast in West Africa, and so I know what it's like to be a foreigner. I know what it's like to live somewhere where you have no voice, you have no vote, you have no influence when it comes to the politics and what's going on in the country where you live. And, and just to be present. And sometimes there's rules and laws that um, you have to follow. You don't necessarily like it. I mean, there's times, you know, as an American, I'm like, well, that's just dumb. I don't want to do that, you know? And it's kind of like, they just look at you like, well, you're a dumb American. It doesn't matter. You got to do it anyway, okay? And, and so I know what it's like, you know, having grown up here in America. Uh, my family, I remember, you know, politics. My, my parents were involved in the elections. Um, I remember as a teenager watching debates on TV, and I'm like, why do I have to watch this? And, but being informed, being involved in what's going on in our country and caring about it, and so I remember how people talked in the language. And then what's interesting then is being gone for 13 years and then able to come back and recognize the change in language. When I was younger, I remember they used to talk about who the majority would be, you know, with the majority, who would, you know, be able to win the majority. Um, today we use words like control. Who will control the house? Who will control the Senate. And the language has become much more high stakes, win and lose. And it's become less about our country and about who gets to run the country. And so for me, I come from this both as an insider, but also eyes 
as an outsider, having lived overseas. Because not just as, you know, not having political power, but even um, living and working in just a different culture where the values are ranked differently. It's not necessarily that they have different values. It's just they kind of order them differently. And because of that, um, customs and behaviors that are quote-unquote normal just look different, okay? And, and it's different. And so you're operating in this kind of environment. Um, when you first arrive, it's, you're just kind of like everything's different. Food's different. The language is different. You know, how they greet you and all these things are different. But after a while, you start to figure out, okay, things are different, but really the heart of what most people hope for, um, it's the same thing. We, we want peace and joy and purpose and belonging within our families, within our neighborhoods, and, and that's what we seek for. And even, so the hopes, but even the temptations that come along within however it's organized are pretty, pretty similar. Um, in 13 years living overseas, I learned a lot about human nature. I learned a lot about human nature and our desire for influence and power and control. It is common to all of us. The desire for power and control in it, and it may not manifest that I want to be the one at the top, but everybody wants to be on the winning team. Everybody wants to be on the winning team, at least to identify with that. I have lived in a country that was being ruled by a dictator. We may use that language sometimes here as, you know, inflammatory language, but I have lived in a place that was truly ruled by a dictator. It was not fun. I've experienced firsthand the consequences of someone desperate to hold on to the power and the control that they had. I have seen devastated communities and fractured lives and families because of this desperation. I have seen it with this reckless desire to hold on to a grip of power and what it does, all the while carrying the name Christian. Protestant, evangelical, Christian. And what's really sad is the individual at one time used to be a champion of democracy on the African continent. And it's amazing how things can change once we get a hold of the power and control. Since the beginning of time, Satan has used the temptation for power and control and for us to be able to decide what's good and bad for ourselves. All the way from the garden, we see Adam and Eve. God invites them to this responsibility. There's one rule. Don't eat of that tree, the, good, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And the temptation to be able to choose to be like God, to have the power to choose for themselves, good. It's been there ever since the beginning. 
And we see this temptation and, and Satan is so good at using this where we think the power and the control, but I'm gonna use, but I, they don't use it well, but for me, I'm gonna use the power and control for good. You'll see, it's gonna be different. And you see, power, it's a, it's a lot like clay. It's, power isn't evil in of itself. I mean, God is the almighty one, the all-powerful, all-knowing one. So power isn't necessarily the problem, is it's what do you, you know, what do you do with the power? And like clay, you can mold it, you can shape it, you know, you can create beautiful things from it. I can't, but, you know, maybe some of you can. Um, but we can do all kinds of things. But, but when we start to feel like we're losing our grip of power and control, we start to tighten our grip. And when we tighten our grip on power and control, we actually lose the power and control that we have and it becomes something that becomes ugly. And not just in politics, but in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our families. The tighter we try to hold on to that, the more it slips through our fingers and, and it creates pain. This temptation, we see this throughout the Old Testament storyline of so many people, um, we see this tension of people, you know, of God who are given power and authority and responsibility. And how are they going to leverage that? How are they going to use that? Are they going to use it to bless the people of God or are they going to use it to bless themselves? And the vast majority of people mess it up. At some point, even Moses, even David, and Solomon, who were probably the best of the best, the temptation to use power and control for their own benefit is so strong. And in this world, the system of this world, we are told that those who get to be at the top get to make the rules, and then life will be good. I think this is why God, even in the Old Testament, is like, for his people, he does not want a king. He does not, I mean, this is very clear. In Samuel, he's like, you know, this is not the idea. I am your king, and I want you to love me and worship and be together, and we're gonna be this people, and you are gonna be this holy nation. Love one another, love me, and we'll be fine. And I will be your king, and I will protect you. In this covenant, and they're like, no thanks, we want a king. And it, and it just does not go well all throughout the Old Testament. And we see um, the need, we need a king who will judge fairly. We need a king who will judge with compassion. Um, the foundational principles that all these leaders in the old, throughout the Old Testament was the same. Love God and love your neighbors care for one another. The laws that you find in Exodus and Deuteronomy, a lot of them had to do with this, these ideas, but especially for those who are marginalized, oppressed, and the poor. A lot of the laws were like, you gotta make sure you look out for everybody, not just the people who are at the top, but look out for everybody. 
throughout society. And I think Micah chapter six, verse eight, um, the prophet Micah is a good, it's a good summary of kind of God's message all throughout the Old Testament when he's looking at his people like, you guys are messing it up and this is what it looks like. This is, when you're getting it right, this is what it should look like. This is what life in the kingdom of God should be like. Micah 6, 8, he says this, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To, and to, and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This, this is it. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. To act justly, to do what's right, to do what's good according to what God says. Whatever that might be, to love mercy, to be looking out for your neighbor and not just worried about yourself, but especially also to walk humbly, to have humility, walking in relationship with the one who loves you and created you. Everybody wants to be on a winning team. Everybody wants to be on a winning team. And Jesus shows us that in God's kingdom, being on the winning team has nothing to do with holding on to power and control. It has nothing to do with holding on tightly to power and control. When Jesus was getting ready to start his ministry, um, this is gonna be our key passage today. He, he goes down to the Jordan River. John the Baptist has had this big revival. He's preparing the way for Jesus to come, to bringing the kingdom with him. That was his role and it's kind of this revival that's going on. And, and Jesus goes down to the Jordan and he goes to be baptized by John. And, he, and John is like, hey, there's the guy. You know, get ready, buckle up, people. This, it's, it's about to happen. And Jesus is baptized, comes out of the water. You have this beautiful picture, the Holy Spirit coming down. And God the Father, this voice comes out. Behold, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so Jesus, this is before any sermon, this is before any miracle and all these things. So this, Jesus is getting ready. This is like his anointing, getting ready to begin his earthly ministry. And from that point, he is led into the desert by the Spirit for preparation, kind of similar to Israel as they left Egypt. They have their time of testing in the desert before they go to the promised land. Jesus too, before he's taken them into the kingdom of God, he's gonna go through his time of testing. And so in Matthew chapter four, we're gonna look at the three temptations. What is it? What are the temptations that Jesus had to overcome in order to lead this ministry, in order to be the Messiah who God called him to be? So let's read together Matthew chapter four. In verses one through four. Temptation number one. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Side note, 
probably the most underwhelming sentence in the Bible. 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, I bet he was hungry, okay? So the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Satan knows the power that Jesus has and he knows how hungry Jesus is. And this is a pretty simple thing. He's like, see that rock? That would make some really good sourdough bread right there, okay? I mean, he's, and I think sometimes it's easy for us to think, yeah, Jesus, he was the son of God, you know? I mean, how, how hard was this real temptation? The Bible doesn't give any sense that this is not a real temptation. This is a real temptation. Jesus is hungry, and he sees the stone. And Satan goes, just turn it into bread. If you're the son of God, I mean, you can do it. I mean, we know later on he multiplies fish and bread and all kinds of things. Jesus answers the temptation this way. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is tempted to use his power for his own benefit. Jesus is tempted to use his own power to make himself comfortable. That I can just take care of this problem and I'll do it. But his reply to Satan, the reply to the tempter is, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on the very word of God. I think Jesus is saying, I'm not going to use this power for myself. I'm gonna let God give it when I need it. I'm gonna let God provide it at the right time. And he's not going to leverage this power for himself. Test number one and passed. So number two, verse eight. Temptation number two. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Anybody who was anybody in the Jewish nation was in Jerusalem. The center, the very presence of God was there at the temple. All the political power, most of the political leaders and all the religious leaders, they were there. And if you want to have a following, if you want to be somebody who's important, just like that. Not only is this, can Jesus be spectacular, but even the angels of God obey him. This is a shortcut. It's like, you don't have to go, you know, all this three and a half years and in dealing with this, boom. They're going to see who you are and you're going to be somebody who they need to listen to. All you have to do, it's easy, it's simple, and you know that the Father will send his angels to protect you. And Jesus answered him. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus says, I'm not gonna force God's hand. God will give it in its time. I'm not gonna force God's hand. 
I will let the Father decide when the right time is the right time. And then the third temptation. Verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Satan shows him, I mean, the kingdoms of this world at this time were impressive. You had Egypt, you had Rome, above all. You had the Asian countries, you had Persia. I mean, this, this was a time of some pretty impressive kingdoms with impressive things happening. And he takes him and he sees all this. He's like, we both know you are the king that they need. You don't have to wait. You can fix it now. You can rule it how you want. You, you, I mean, think about this. You can be in charge. You don't have to go the hard road. And I think this is a real temptation. Because if you remember in the garden, Jesus was not excited about going to the cross. Three times he prayed to the Father, if there's another way, take this cup from me. And Satan goes, there is another way. And it's a lot easier. Just bow down and worship me and it's all yours. And Jesus replies, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And I, I mean, there's this part of us that, you know, Jesus knows who, who is truly worthy of worship. But I think usually it's that first half we go, worship the Lord your God yourself. But notice what he says in the second part of that. Serve him only. And from that point, when Jesus goes out to do his ministry, how does he describe himself? As a servant. I came to do what? I didn't come to rule, I came to serve. And he came and he does. And, and from that point, the teachings that he does, his interactions with people, the healings that he does is about serving people. It is about helping people and empowering people to be who God created them to be. And this was his ministry. And this is what power in the kingdom of God looked like. Anytime that the disciples in the midst of this ministry started to get into this discussion of who's number one, who's two, who's the greatest, who's the least, and how do we rank ourselves, Jesus would rebuke them firmly. It's like, this is not how we do things. Matthew, in one of these instances, Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. In this passage, not so with you is the imperative. This is the most important part of this verse. This is not how we do things in the kingdom. It is not about power. It is not about control. He says, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the kingdom of God, power doesn't come through control. Power comes through empowerment of other people. True power comes through empowerment of other people. And what does that mean in the kingdom of God? It means servant leadership. It means I serve God and I, I'm willing to get low, but not just to lower myself, I get low in order to lift other people up. To help them become who God has called them to be. People who need to be forgiven find forgiveness and freedom. People who need healing are healed and helped. The poor aren't just given a token. They're empowered to be transformed. Think of Jesus' inaugural kind of sermon. What did he say? The spirit of the Lord is on me. And what is it to do? It is to set people free, to give sight to the blind, freeing the prisoners, helping the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Real power in the kingdom is about empowering other people to be who God created them to be. So how do we do this? How, how, what does this look like for you and for me? Because Unlike Jesus, I'm not very good at healing the lame. Wherever God has placed us, number one, I must remember that I am a citizen of the kingdom of God first, period. Over family, over nationality, over whatever other qualifier you have, I am a citizen of the kingdom of God first. And I live according to the values of that kingdom. And some of that takes some hard work and some transformation and letting go of things that I was taught were really important in my culture and in my education and my background. And it's learning to follow the way of Jesus. Love is our guiding principle. We always have to ask ourselves, if, is, is what I'm doing a loving thing? In Micah 6.8 is this wonderful mindset to start with. So whatever area that God puts us, whatever our circle is, whether it's in our family, our workplace, our neighborhood, even in our own country, Wherever God has placed me, I have to ask myself, what does it look like to act justly? In my family, wherever I am, to seek to do good. This isn't just moral perfection. This is seeking to do what's right, even when it's hard. Even when there's gonna be backlash, I'm going to do what's right in God's eyes. The second one is to love mercy, to care about those who are marginalized, impressed, the poor, and the outcasts, that I have an eye in that direction 
looking for those who need to be welcomed and loved. I pay special attention as I go about my life. I actually look the cashier in the eye. I actually see the people that so easily we just walk right by. And the third is just walk humbly with our God. Humility. Seeking God, listening to him, listening to the spirit, tuning our ears to listen through prayer. And asking the question, God, where are you leading me in this time in this place? Because love is our guiding principle, but love must be given. It cannot be forced or coerced. This is why God gives us the freedom to walk away. Love must be given. It cannot be forced. The temptation of power the temptation to go, you know, we can change society if we just get the right people in the right place has never worked. Because people will ultimately fail you. It's not about the power and control. I must trust God that the good that I am doing, that God will use it. Even when it looks like I'm gonna choose to do what's right. I'm gonna do what I believe God is leading me to do. Even when it looks like I'm not sure how or why it's gonna be successful, it doesn't look like it's worth it. It doesn't look like it's worth the cost that I still go, but I trust that God will do something with it and he will honor it. And I believe in him because my hope is not in the people in power. My hope is in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do good, I'm going to love mercy, and I am going to walk humbly with my God, wherever the arena may be. And it may be, this is not a don't worry about politics. I mean, even when I go to the election, when I go into the polls, that I'm guided by these principles. What, is, what do I believe God is telling me is just and is merciful and is walking with God. What would God have me do? And I trust in that, and I cast my vote, and I, I participate in society. I participate in discussion. I, I'm a part of what's going on in our world, but yet at the same time, my hope is not in this candidate to make everything better. My hope is in the Lord. And I am so thankful that we have people like Tony Cook. I know Tony's here. People who are followers of Jesus who are involved, who are in the state capitol, who are, we need believers and followers of Jesus who are there to influence. But I love you, Tony, but my hope's not in you. He's over there, there he is. I saw him at the communion, so I knew he was here. I love Tony and I, I love his heart. I know who he is. I know he loves Jesus and he follows Jesus, but Tony Cook isn't gonna fix everything for us but I appreciate the influence in, in my prayer for him and our other leaders is that they would act justly, they would love mercy, and they would walk humbly with God. And if we do that, I trust what God will do. 
the question, where is your hope? Where do you put your hope, really? It's easy for us to go, yeah, my hope's in Jesus, but really for life and how it's going, here's a couple questions that I want you to consider about where your hope really is. The power went off at this point last time, so. Seriously, like it went off, all right. So what would your reaction be if God decides that America's global influence must decrease in order for the kingdom of God to increase? Are you okay with that? Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall and God's in charge of it all. Am I okay with that? I'm not saying it has to happen. I, you know, God will do what he, he needs to do, but are you okay with that? As a, citizen, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, I need to be. Because that might be the reality. If that just really grates you, I would say you need to examine where your hope truly lies, where you're seeking peace joy and contentment from. If election night or the next morning, if you're like me, um, and you see the results and your candidate wins or loses, if you see that result, what is your reaction? If your reaction is fear that everything's going to fall apart, I would say your hope is somewhere else. If it's excitement that everything's going to be great, everything's going to change, and everything's going to be wonderful because this person is now in charge, I would say your hope is in the wrong place. One of the most important lessons I learned 13 years in Ivory Coast is that my contentment, my joy, and peace, and purpose have nothing to do with who's in power. It does not count on them. As bad as a leader we had for a long time, how I lived life, how I interacted with my neighbors in the ministry and where God put me, it did not matter who was in power. If I followed and stepped in line with God, I could put my head on my pillow at night and sleep peacefully, knowing that God is still sovereign and God is in control. And he will use the good that I have done for his purposes. Paul and Peter had the same attitude um, in their letters. They still encouraged the early church to honor and pray for the Roman authorities and the emperor. They were pretty terrible. I mean, as bad as, I don't want to say his name, as bad as the guy that we had, I mean, they were worse. And, and they, but their hope was not in any political power. Our hope is in the Lord. True power comes from empowering other people to become who God has created them to be. That is the priority in the kingdom of God. That's what we are called to do, is to empower people to help them know they are loved, they are forgiven, they are healed, and they can find transformation through Jesus Christ. He alone is the hope of the world. So today I wanna, as we wrap up this message, I wanna challenge you because this idea of acting justly 
loving mercy, walking humbly with our God. It, it can be challenging with even the people we love and we like. But those who think differently than us, this is where it's really hard. People who are on the other side of the political aisle from you. People who are just difficult to be around. We need to make sure that we're not trying to just grasp onto the power and hold on for dear life with the control that we have. But to give, let the influence that we have be through love, even those who are the hardest to love. So I wanna invite you to stand with me and we're gonna pray and we're gonna pray for hard things that God give us opportunity to live out these principles even with those who are hardest to love. All right, let's pray. Father God, this morning I am so grateful that when I was far from you, when I had walked away from you, that you sought me out and you loved me and, and Jesus made the way to be a part of your kingdom. And Father, may my eyes be fixed on that and that my hope not be fixed on any person, any, any other thing in this world to count on to be happy and, and healthy. Lord, that we look to you. And Father, my prayer is, even when it's hard, you would move us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk with humility with you. That we would not be afraid to have hard conversations because it comes from a place of love. That we would not be afraid to walk in uncomfortable places because we know you are with us and our hope is in you. That you would lead us to be stretched and to grow and not to use the power, not to use the influence you, we have for our own selfish gain. But that we would like Jesus, be people who empower, people who heal, people who let you work through us to bring transformation in lives and in communities. Father, I pray that you would lead us powerful ways that we can't imagine through your spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I do want to challenge you. We have a class coming up, starts next week that I'll be leading on civil conversations in a cancel culture. This class is not about winning an argument. This class is how do I have healthy interactions with people? How, how do I have good conversations and make an impact in this world where it can be so hard? And so I challenge you to be a part of that class. It'll be at nine o'clock during the first hour. All right. Thanks, everybody. So glad to have you join us today. Go be salt and light in a world that desperately needs it.